good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll take you with on my visit to a new bookstore slash cafe that's hoping to be a resource and a gathering center for Chicago's theater community. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new local production of What the Constitution Means to Me, and I'll catch up with the local author behind an intriguing biography on an influential but largely forgotten philanthropist, Edith Rockefeller McCormick. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. A new bookstore slash cafe on the north side of Chicago is hoping to draw artists from the city's robust theater community and people who just like good coffee. The Understudy opened its doors at the corner of Clark and Gregory a little over a month ago. It sits along a popular stretch of the Andersonville neighborhood where there's no shortage of places to meet a friend for coffee. But unlike those other places, The Understudy is also a theater-focused bookstore. Its shelves are filled with published plays and a variety of books all connected to the art of theater. I recently visited The Understudy on a weekday afternoon to catch up with co-owners Adam Todd Crawford and Danny Fender. The place was packed and buzzing with energy at noon. Chicago was once home to two theater bookstores, but had been without one for over 20 years. That void was part of the inspiration that led Crawford and Fender, who are both working theater artists, down this path. We started thinking about this in earnest during the pandemic. This is Adam Crawford. And we both had other jobs outside of theater by necessity because there was nothing happening in the theater world. And so we started to think about, okay, if and when this is over, how do we want to be part of the Chicago theater community? Because this is, we both went to school here in Chicago at DePaul, and um, that's where we met. Danny's a stage manager, and I'm an actor and a director. And yeah, we just started to really realize what it was we actually missed about being in Chicago theater. And much of that was the people and the community and that sense of curiosity and collaboration. And so we started to think about how can we create a place that fosters all of those things within our community. And then it came from a very practical need, which is that we have not had a theater bookstore here in Chicago in about 25 years. And uh, I really missed that when I was a student and I was looking for new monologues or new scene work. I decided really early on that I was not gonna play anyone who wasn't gay if I didn't have to. And that made it very challenging for me to find material because there wasn't anywhere I could go and sit on the floor and pull down books and look through them. And so we really, that's where the dream started is uh, trying to create that resource for the Chicago theater community. And thinking about this idea of community, for me and Adam, for me and my work, during my work as a stage manager, what I love about that role is I get to work with so many different types of creative minds. I get to work with so many different types of personalities. And that's why I love stage managing. I love the people and I love the community that comes along with it. And the understudy feels like an extension of that. And I think what's been really lovely as we've been building out this space is to discover the other aspect of our store, which is the Chicago coffee community and the different intersections that come between those two communities we have found to be very exciting. It's two very different types of creative communities, but there is a lot of overlap. And it's been lovely to discover that as we've been doing the store. 
Right. I mean, we're we're storytellers, so we think about all the time the story that we're telling when you enter the understudy. And for us, for me, that story is about all the hard work it takes to make beautiful things happen. Crawford and Fender knew pretty early on in the process they wanted there to be a coffee component to the business. Of course, we live in a city with about 200 theaters and a lot of very, very enthusiastic theater fans and people who work in theater. But still, a, cof- a bookshop alone is sort of a challenging business to keep afloat. And then making it even more niche, selling only plays, we thought, how can we m- help this support itself? And so that was where the initial idea for the coffee shop began. And Danny and I really were not coffee people at the beginning of this process. But because we're both very nerdy and we're both committed to doing things right, we have gotten really, really passionate about specialty coffee as we've come along with this idea. And so what we sort of started with, not I won't say begrudgingly, but uh, with less passion, uh, has become equally passionate. I like to say it's not that we're 50% bookstore and 50% coffee shop. We are 100% bookstore and 100% coffee shop. And I think it's a natural pairing too. I mean, coffee uh, shops and cafes are natural gathering spaces. They're third spaces for a lot of folks, whether you're meeting up with a friend or working from home. Um, It gets gets people out of the house, gives them a place to go. And I think there's something really special about getting to be a part of people's routines. Um, Andersonville is an amazing neighborhood and there's a a lot of focus uh, and support on small businesses. And we're very proud to support uh, local businesses here at The Understudy. We have Metric Coffee uh, that supplies our coffee. We have Spirit Tea, the Coffee and Tea Exchange, Ethereal Confections. We have mugs designed by Manual Design. Um, Creighton Berman is that artist. We have a mural that was painted by a local artist, Joe Craft. And it's just very important to us, that community aspect. And, you know, as I was saying before, the intersection between those different creative communities really come into play in the store, I believe. As far as the bookshop concept there were a couple theater bookstores in chicago in the 80s and 90s but none for the last 20 25 years and this is just your opinion but why do you think this hasn't been tried in so long it is an extremely niche thing to do because there's just not a lot of information out there about how to make this happen a lot of the publishers for plays are not invested in putting their books out there in bookstores because they make their money from licensing or their academic presses, and that's just not really their bag, is uh, making their money selling through retail. And so we had to sort of do it from scratch, and it was a real challenge. I think that that was a really, really big barrier to that, is just how could you possibly start doing this? We figured out how, but I th- I think that's why. Well, and you also think about, you know, the the fear or the competition of something like Amazon where, you know, there's that convenience aspect of, you know, why go to a space when, you know, you could have it delivered into your door within like two days. And then our answer to that would be is that you have a level of curation and community interaction that you can't get online. You know, you come into our space, you want a recommendation for a play, and we can have a conversation. Um, and there's that level of community uh, and intentionality and curation that you can't get anywhere else or can't get online. 
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with Danny Fender and Adam Crawford, the co-owners of the new theater bookstore slash coffee shop, The Understudy. After initially announcing their plans in the spring of 2022, it took a year for The Understudy to officially open its doors in March of this year, but it's quickly become a destination for the theater community and residents of the Andersonville neighborhood. It's a very special experience to see the store open now because it was an idea in our heads for a very long time. And and, uh, now to have it open, I get to see the reality of people coming here and gathering and celebrating creative community here in the space. I mean, I constantly see people come in and actors or people who have worked on shows together. I eavesdrop on people sitting with their editors and editing manuscripts. I walk past people who are on Actors Access and looking at auditions or people who are mouthing their lives to themselves and rehearsing. So it already is this incredible, creative, collaborative space that what I love about it is that we don't have to explain that idea to people. People walk into the understudy and they understand what they're invited to do here. Mm -hmm. And that sense of community has been really, really wonderful. Obviously, everyone's welcome here to to get a cup of coffee or to, to pick up a book, but you're hoping that theater artists engage with the space. I think what's been exciting is that we have folks who wander into the space, maybe who live here in the neighborhood, uh, who say, oh, you know, I'm not a theater person at all, but I love being in here because I love the environment and I love the vibe of the space. Um, And for me, that's really important because I want this to be a space where maybe if you've left theater um, or, you know, maybe you studied theater in college and haven't come back to it for quite some time, that this is a place where you can rediscover it or, you know, have that curiosity ignited by the people that you meet here or by the books that you see on our shelves. Um, And I love seeing, you know, those different types of folks in the space. The level of support that we've received from the community and from our neighbors is beyond what we could have ever imagined. I mean, everyone has just shown shown us so much love and support um, for what we're doing, and it has just meant the world to us. Absolutely, and I really, I wanna emphasize that we're not saying that to be coy or to be overly flattering because we're very, we have been very thoughtful and very intentional about trying to envision what this is going to be like and how we can make it work. And we had no idea about the level of support we were going to have. I mean, I will never forget the feeling of opening the door on opening day and watching the crowd flow in and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming every time I thought that I could (laughs) let go of the door because there were not any more people coming in, they kept coming. And that's been our experience since that day. It's the Andersonville community showing up for us, the theater community showing up for us, and that level of support is just unbelievable. And also we've become a destination for folks who are uh, visiting out of town as well. We've had so many people saying, oh, I'm in from Atlanta. I'm in from Louisville, Kentucky. And I drove in from Kenosha. I I drove in from Kenosha and my friends told me that I had to come here. Um, And I, I think that's something that I didn't think about as well is that, you know, Chicago is a city that has a like thriving like tourism scene and, you know, that we get to be a part of that, especially for folks who are visiting Chicago and engaging with the theater community and the art scene that exists here. Is there any type of thought that maybe people gather here like before a show or that might come organically? Yeah, I mean, I think it is sort of already happening. People will tell me sometimes in the evenings before, you know, they're dressed up and they say, I'm come, I'm stopping here before I go to a show at, you know, Steep or the Neo Futurists or somewhere around here. And uh, I think that is a great extension of the fact that we are in a neighborhood that has a lot of theaters in it already. 
Uh, and also we have brand new neighbors next door, Bramble Theater Company, who are opening a 100-seat theater and a 50-seat black box just about three doors away. So we're very excited to be neighbors with them. They're wonderful people, and their space is going to be just gorgeous. So I'm very happy to be able to be the lobby for them. Shout out to the Bramble Arts Loft. (laughs) In addition to being a space for the community, it's also going to be a valuable resource for theater artists looking for specific texts. It's one of my personal sort of soapboxes, too, that I want to give theater as literature more of its due because uh, there are some real page turners on the shelves here that are plays and and they're not things that you would encounter in a regular bookstore but if you're a reader or if you're interested in that sort of thing you can find something that you like in a play if you like watching tv i can match you up with uh, a play that might remind you of a tv show that you love or a movie that you love or a, a book that you love And I think that we do have already had a lot of people come in who are like, I haven't read a play in 15 years. What can I find here that I'm going to enjoy? And are you both taking part in the curation of what's on shelves? Absolutely. So it's interesting, you know, when you're opening up a bookstore, usually you have an opening inventory that is suggested to you. But because we are so niche, with the help of... um, you know, lists from our publishers and with the help of, you know, the community giving us suggestions of what they'd like to see on the shelves, we essentially handpick every single title that you see on the shelves. And that is out of necessity because the world of play publishing is very unique and it's very different than than traditional trade publishing. And so we leaned on our own nerdiness and our own passion about Chicago theater. And, and that's where we started was looking at our own shelves and thinking about all the plays we'd seen here in Chicago and all the playwrights we wanted represented and just trying to track down as much of that material as possible. And it's growing and changing all the time to represent. We've got a lot of new new Canadian playwrights in, a lot of new British playwrights in. Uh, and so also always people come in and say, did you know the Chicago playwright is published under this indie publisher? And so we are always very excited when we get to find uh, more stuff to bring people in and to add to our shelves. You're both theater artists. I would imagine there's a learning curve in opening, figuring out how to run a bookstore slash coffee shop. It was a huge learning curve for the two of us. And to it learn. continues to and, be, And too. continues to be. Um, but I think the thing that has been the most rewarding is all of the help that we've had had along the way. Adam and I would not be where we are without, you know, the Chicago theater community, the support and creative energy that we've received from our staff. Uh, We have an excellent staff of barista booksellers, people who are so passionate about coffee and theater and who aren't afraid to bring their ideas to the table. Um, Our staff is constantly giving us feedback of, you know, how to better organize like the store or what systems can be in place to, you know, better, you know, to craft our recipes and to refine. Um, And it's truly because of that support and you know the support from the small business community and other coffee shop owners other bookstore owners um, the understudy is through and through a community and family-led effort when um, we would not be here without so many people who've helped us along the way looking ahead and I know you guys are still in your first month thoughts on like what programming are you going to do additional things here yeah looking ahead we plan to program staged readings author events um, artist panels coffee cuppings um, coffee like latte art throwdowns 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the whole space is designed around celebrating process. Uh, and you see that on the walls in the hallway that um, Susan Williams uh, did this uh, collage designed for us of all torn out script pages. And you can see on the walls there people's highlights, people's notes in the marginalia, thinking things out and doing their process of directing something, of reading something, of uh, acting in something. And that's what we want to celebrate with our events as well, is facilitating people in process, whether it be playwrights who are working on a new script or actors who are just starting out in their careers, or maybe a book club for people who are just getting into reading Shakespeare for the first time. And so our space is designed to be super modular so we can say yes to as many things as possible. We're really, really eager to be able to do that. As soon as we get our feet under us a little bit more, the, the possibilities are pretty endless in terms of what we can fit in this space. That was Adam Todd Crawford and Danny Fender. They're the co-owners of The Understudy. The theater bookstore slash coffee shop is located at 5531 North Clark Street in Chicago's Andersonville neighborhood. You can find more information at theunderstudy.shop. And a quick reminder, if you tune into the arts section every Sunday morning here on WDCB, thank you. But also remember to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. A finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, What the Constitution Means to Me has been presented a couple of times in Chicago over the years. And I think one of those runs was cut short because of the pandemic. But those were touring productions. Now Timeline Theater is wrapping up its current season with a local production. The work comes from playwright and actor Heidi Schreck. In past interviews, she's described what the Constitution means to me as a, quote, very personal love story about a teenage girl's bad romance with the Constitution. The work has garnered a good deal of attention over the years. It was nominated for a couple Tony Awards and a Pulitzer Prize. It'll be interesting to see how the work evolves as some of the issues it touches on have shifted since its initial premiere. Shrek herself starred in some of the earlier productions, but other actors have taken over the main role in subsequent versions. Libertyville native Beth Lakey takes on the role of Heidi in this Timeline production. Both Jonathan and Carrie have seen prior productions of this. Interested to hear what they'll have to say about this new one. Carrie, we'll start with you. As far as the premise, this is a quasi-one-woman show. Heidi Schreck made her money for college. She grew up in rural uh, Washington State. I think she calls her town the Apple Capital of America. And mostly through her mother's encouragement, she entered a series of debates and uh, oratorical contests sponsored by American legions across the U.S on the Constitution, where she would give a speech on the Constitution, there'd be an opposing person giving another speech, and then one of them would be selected as the winner. And she actually did manage to 
you know, pay for her college that way. Although, as she reminds us, it was 30 years ago and it was a state school. But nonetheless, you know, this is fairly, <laughs> uh, fairly remarkable. So it's in sense, a sense of recreation of 15-year-old Heidi, as you mentioned, played by Beth Lakey here, doing this, her speech, which posits the Constitution as a crucible, and then addressing other issues around the Constitution. And as it keeps going on, she's weaving in stories about her family, particularly the women in her family, who faced a long history going back several generations of abuse, mental illness, and tying that in with the fact that women were not even mentioned in the Constitution and were not included. And even, you know, the 14th Amendment did not apply to black women, did not apply to women at all. Uh, And what does that mean? What is the, literally, it's the founding document to which you have this, you know, 15-year-old nerd girl's attachment doesn't even really include you for so much of its history. What does that mean for you personally? What does that mean for us as a republic? I think it's taken on fresh resonance, obviously, because Roe v. Wade being overturned last summer, uh, the new revelations about what we're hearing about some of the justices and uh, some of the financial, uh, you know, perks that they have received from various people over the years, which is mentioned, which, you know, is a new thing, um, kind of mentioned in passing, but it's there, has given it, I think, a fresh urgency. I'd be very interested to hear what you think, Jonathan, that based on your past encounters with it. We both have seen this before. Um, uh, As noted, it's an autobiographical, or more specifically, uh, a partially autobiographical work. It's a theater piece rather than a play, and it doesn't end the way it starts, It's thought-provoking, it's certainly well-researched, and uh, there's a good deal of entertainment value in it. But, you know, the several times I've seen it, I've come away not completely satisfied. And I think it's due to the overall loose structure and, for me, the inconclusive ending of the piece. Uh, As you've noted, Carrie, the chief job of what the Constitution means to me is to reveal how the Constitution addresses or fails to address certain specifically women's issues, notably abortion rights and the right to protection against gender bias and violence. It's disguised, This uh, let's call it this real focus, <laughs> is disguised by the device of the American Legion oratory contest, and uh, Heidi Schreck takes us back to the mid-1980s to recreate such a contest. It's set in an American Legion hall in um, in, a, in Wenatchee, Washington, where she grew up. The whole scenic design is by Jessica uh, Cueldo Wardell, and it's detailed, perfect, and really provides a strong sense of place. But very quickly, uh, uh, the narrative character, who is you know, the actors playing Heidi, the chief character, pulls us into the present, then shifts us back and forth for a while before finally abandoning the theatrical mm-hmm. device, the theatrical narrative completely. Um, there are certain key points that are hit over and over again. Shrek's text reminds us repeatedly that the Constitution was written exclusively by white men and overwhelmingly still is interpreted by white men. Uh, she also points out it's a negative rights dom- do- document saying what government can do or cannot do rather than guaranteeing rights in a positive way. As you already noted, uh, uh, Carrie, uh, she calls attention to the fact that uh, uh, women, uh, indigenous peoples, immigrants, and certain other groups are never specifically mentioned at all. And finally, and importantly, Shrek speaks quite eloquently 
about what the late Justice William O. Douglas called the penumbra of the Constitution, the vague, shadowy areas open to interpretation. The play goes on to say that the penumbra of the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment provided the legal basis for Roe v. Wade and for equal protection, uh, which withered when the late Justice Antonin Scalia decided that the word shall in the Constitution, the, you know, the government shall do this or shall not do that, he decided that the word shall did not mean must when mm-hmm. it came to protecting women from violence. Right. So those are some of the salient points. Uh, yeah. There's certainly think, a lot to chew on here. Right. I think one of the things that's interesting, and I thought about it more this time than in my past encounters with it, is this idea of what it means to have this personal relationship. The idea from the beginning, we are told uh, in Heidi's script, is that their speech about um, the Constitution is supposed to tie it into their own personal experiences. And what's interesting is as the show goes on, she talks more about these these justices and what their personal experiences might be and how that came to play, not just the ones who were, you know, getting paid off, (laughs) to put it bluntly, Uh, but she talks about William O. Douglas, who was having an affair with a much younger woman, as were allegedly, you know, two or three other justices at the time. So that might have given them a vested interest in wanting to make sure that birth control for unmarried women was readily available. I, uh, I think I mentioned this in a review I wrote the last time I saw it, but I think it's worth repeating. I saw Nina Totenberg on, uh, on a panel several years ago, and she talked about uh, Justice Lewis Powell. It was sort of a surprise vote in favor of Roe v. Wade. He was, sort of, he was on the fence. He weren't sure which way he was going to go. And on this panel, she talked about um, an interview she had with him, or actually just kind of a tea. I mean, it wasn't like a formal interview, but she sat down with him after he'd left the, the court. And he mentioned that um, one of the reasons that he had been moved to vote in the majority on Roe v. Wade is that as a young attorney, I believe in Richmond, Virginia, he had been approached by a clerk in the law firm telling him that his girlfriend was pregnant, they needed, that they could not afford to have a baby, you know, they, they needed to end this. What, would he, what did he know? What could he do? And, of course, he could do nothing, and he had to tell them, you never bring this up to me. I will lose my law license. This is highly illegal. We never had this discussion. I cannot recall if the woman died or if she was just left very badly maimed um, and infertile from the illegal procedure. But the point Powell made to Totenberg, which I thought was fascinating, was since that time, I have never felt that this was anything the government should be getting into. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially it. Totenberg brought that story up to illustrate, yes, indeed, personal experiences inform you know, how these justices vote. Um, and we are foolish to think that that is not a factor that they are that they are coming from a place of neutrality and i think that's a little bit of what shrek is playing with um this idea that i cannot just view this document i mean as as a neutral thing it's it's a living organism it's it's a crucible it's hot and sweaty but also sometimes you know maybe it's the pot that you know the the frogs are boiling in as it gets turned up a little bit maybe that's what it feels like now with some of the backwards movement, from my perspective, certainly, that we've seen with the current incarnation of SCOTUS. Um, but I think what it's also asking us is to think of how we are involved as citizens. To that end, I want to bring up the last part of the show, which is when a student debater, a real student debater, is brought up to debate with uh, Beth Lakey, in this case, um, whether the Constitution should be abolished or whether it should be, you know, and start from scratch, or whether it should be kept. 
Now, Jonathan, you and I, I think, saw Michaela Simpson as the uh, student debater. Yes. And I have to say, I thought she was absolutely terrific. I don't know how you feel about the device overall, but I feel like a fresh, I mean, literally, because she's a young woman, she's in, I think she's 18 years old, coming on with her perspective, with her knowledge. Um, and it's, and, you know, and it is absolutely, they don't know which side they're going to take any on any given night. You know, that's, so it's not set up in that sense. Um, that gave like a, a vitality and a, you know, to me, a little bit of a, you know, sitting on the edge of the seat element to it. I don't know how it landed with you, but I, th- I think we can agree that Michaela Simpson was really interesting to watch. As I said in my opening notes, the, the way it ends uh, disappoints me. I think it's a, 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 a letdown. Uh, overall, this show is well presented by Timeline under director Helen Young, we should note, and with Beth Lackey really exuding personality as Heidi, although there are a couple of moments now and then which she seemed to be on the verge of ditzy. Uh, at least that's how it struck me. But overall, a, a good and a charming performance. But when the ruse of the oratory contents ends, for me, the show lost energy and spark. Uh, the final portion of the 100-minute show with the actual teenage debater who is introduced. They debate whether the Constitution should exist at all, whether we should abolish it and start over. And then they debate certain specific points and answer questions written out and asked by the audience of the previous night. And they're talking as themselves. Uh, Rather, you know, Lackey is no longer pretending to be Heidi. Uh, They make an effort to stimulate audience response, which uh, uh, never seems quite to work. And for me, the evening, uh, the several times I've seen this, always ends with an anticlimax. Yeah, I don't think of it so much as an anticlimax as a cooling down, because I think so much of the show is understandably upsetting, and, and as I said, increasingly so as we look at you know the, the backwards direction that we've been taking over the last couple of years. I think what it is, is for me at least, and I certainly appreciate it landed differently with you, is a chance to remind us that democracy happens one-on-one, many cases. It happens with people talking to each other. It happens with people getting to know each other. It happens with people being urged to really think about the direction they want to take, where they, where do they want things to go, and, uh, you know, and, and realizing that it's, it's not a spectator sport. As hopeless as we may sometimes feel, um, we do have an obligation you know, to, to get in there and, and be heard. Uh, one thing I will mention that I thought was clever, it was a bit of a, a detour, uh, the last time I saw it, um, the, the, they didn't really have this announcement, but I think um, Timeline worked it in, that the, uh, <laughs> the opening announcement about turning off your phones and not recording is coming from President Biden. Now, I was laughing at that, and then I started thinking, did they create this through AI, or did AI, they have somebody yeah. who's a very good yes. Biden impersonator? So that gave me pause, because I thought, well, this is another frontier that we may be looking at constitutionally well, you, <laughs> down you the road. You don't think they could have gotten him to record? I mean, what, what well, did it take, five minutes? Well, they do know, yeah, five maybe, minutes? maybe, you maybe know. Maybe they know someone who knows someone, <laughs> you know, who put in a call to the chief, yeah. what? But, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's an yeah. absolutely in the same tone and energy and uh, yeah. sort of yeah. you know uh, vernacular <laughs> that no, our president what, uses. What struck me is you know that the Fourteenth Amendment is so important to this. The Fourteenth Amendment being 
such it's in four sections mm. as the as the show notes carefully notes goes over each one and you know the 14th amendment is being discussed right now today because part of it the fourth section of it is the section about the national debt and the creditworthiness mm-hmm. of the US which will give if he needs to use it if he must president biden the ability to do an end run about around congress in terms of raising the debt ceiling. And this same 14th Amendment is part of what made Roe v. Wade possible. It's part of what makes equal protection and equal justice under the law possible. It's an incredibly broad and important amendment. And, and, and you know, I think if Heidi Schreck were writing this or revising this play today, Maybe she'd pay a little more attention to that short sure. section about the. Sure, about, I mean, and I think that's why this play continues to have US. some fascination. Yeah. You know that yeah. there's new. Uh, I, one other, I mean, this is a very sad note, but one of the cases they bring up is a case I think largely uh, you know decided through Scalia that, and this is where the word "shall" came into effect when we hear the actual you know tapes of the justices arguing this. A uh, woman in Texas whose daughters were kidnapped by her husband, her estranged husband or ex-husband, I'm not sure which, against whom she had a permanent order of protection. And she went to the police. The police basically told her, stop bothering us. And the daughters ended up being murdered. She sued, and the decision came down that, in fact, police do not have an obligation to protect you. Now, think about that with the Evalde shooting. And everyone's like, why didn't those police go in? What, what were they doing? How could they not be doing their jobs? Well, I mean, the Supreme Court said they don't have to. Well, it was, they literally you know, do not have to protect you. I mean, it, 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 when you think about that, it's rather shocking. But that is, in fact, what the Supreme Court essentially said. It's interesting to think that these, these sorts of academic debates, I mean, not to be completely blunt about it, but I guess I will be, they have a body count. And that is, I think, one of the, the sobering things about this show. And so that is perhaps why, for me, the little, you know, you know cool-down period with Heidi, and in this case, then the student debater uh, sitting on stage and just kind of talking to one another or answering questions to the previous audience. It felt, I don't want to say a benediction, but it definitely felt like, okay, I need this moment to take this breath. But I can certainly understand if you feel like it sort of lessens the impact of what has come before. Yes, and for me it does. And that's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, no, no discredit to the folks up there on stage. That's how this particular piece was was written right. by Shrek. Right. And I would like to also give a shout out to Raymond Fox, who plays uh, a couple the of different roles. Primarily, he is the he's originally the American Legionnaire, who is kind of running the debate, and then takes on a couple other roles. And you know, there's something about having to be sort of the silent partner on stage because he doesn't have a lot of lines. <laughs> he's there to sort of run the stopwatch, hold up the cards to let them know how much time they have left. But every time I looked at him, he was fully engaged, fully in character, um, and, and as I said, that, that's kind of an underrated skill. I think he, uh, he really brings a certain kind of, um, you know, he, he's not, the character could so easily be caricature, but he never slips into that, so I right. just wanted to give a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a, you know, kudos there to Raymond Fox, who sure. most, many of our viewers, uh, listeners may know from uh, his many appearances with Looking Glass Theater. Right. Raymond Fox is a member of the Looking Glass Ensemble and uh, one of our uh, strong, reliable veteran actors in the city. And, and, yes, you said, fully engaged. The Mm -hmm. character he plays is a bit on the bland side, but still has to be engaged, and he certainly has uh, has his, his chops together. Right, right. So is it a new student every night? Uh, they have two different students who 
are switching off in the roles, is my oh, understanding. Okay. But I will say that in the case of, of Ms. Simpson, when she mentioned one of the questions that she was asked at the performance we saw was, where do you see yourself, you know, in 30 years? Um, and after we got through the shock of her thinking that 48 is so very old, <laughs> uh, she mentioned that she would love to be a veterinarian working in Indonesia. And my reaction was, that's great for you, but can't you stay here and run for office? Because you seem really smart. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 I want you here. Go to Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Members of the audience who see this show are going to walk away with a handy little paperback copy of the Constitution from preamble to the most yep. recent little, amendment. Little pocket size. You little, carry it with little, you everywhere. Timeline Theater's production of What the Constitution Means to Me continues through July 2nd. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. You're most welcome. You know, next weekend we'll be talking about another play, but it's Memorial Day weekend. Too bad this couldn't have been our Memorial Day weekend. (laughs) Oh, well. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the Earth Section. Raise your hand if you know the name Edith Rockefeller McCormick. No doubt you recognize the surnames. Rockefellers and McCormicks are often associated with wealth and philanthropy. But don't feel bad if you can't recall an Edith Rockefeller McCormick. Most people probably can't. That's because despite her prestigious family connections, she's been somewhat written out of history. But Edith Rockefeller McCormick's personal story is quite remarkable especially for those of us in the Chicago area. Elmhurst-based author Andrea Friederici Ross thought as much, so she wrote a book about the forgotten woman, who at one time was among the richest people in the United States. I recently caught up with Friederici Ross to talk about her book, Edith, the Rogue Rockefeller McCormick. In the intro, in the preface, you write that you first learned about Edith Rockefeller McCormick while researching a Another book? Were you not familiar with her? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, nobody's really familiar with her, right? Whenever I do programs or anything, I always ask how many people have heard of her ahead of time, and most haven't. Yeah, I learned about Edith while I was writing the history book for Brookfield Zoo. Uh, It's called Let the Lions Roar. And uh, it begins with Edith. The first two pages are about Edith because she gave the land that started the zoo. So the first sentence of the book is actually an unusual woman made Brookfield Zoo possible. In researching the Brookfield Zoo, you come across this person that's largely responsible for the zoo even existing. And then is it just through continued reading about her that you start to think she's compelling enough for her own book? Yeah, so I had uh, I read a lot of historical fiction. I love that genre. It's just really accessible. It's an, you know, an easy way to learn about history. Um, and I had just read the book Loving Frank, which I just loved about Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize it's fiction. There's a lot in there that, that isn't accurate, but it's a, great, uh, it's a great read. And I thought, you know, if only I knew an interesting person. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to try historical fiction. And then I thought, aha, an unusual woman made Brookfield Zoo possible. I do know an interesting person. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the, the things that I had put in those, those first few pages were kind of the, 
the low-hanging fruit that you you gather first when you first uh, search for Edith. And when I was writing the zoo history book, it was really before the days of Google. I was doing a lot of this through microfilm and stuff oh. like that. Seems like a really long time ago, <laughs> but actually it wasn't that long ago. It was in the late 90s. I knew she was an interesting person, and um, I just I picked all the, the the easy stuff. The fact that she once announced she was the reincarnation of King Tut's child bride, and the fact that she blew through a lot of her money, and uh, the fact that she worked with Carl Jung for so long. Um, but then, as I began to research her, I realized that there was a lot more to this woman, and that she gave a lot to the city of Chicago, and nobody knows her name. Mm-hmm. Nobody had ever heard of her. Um, and I grew up in the Chicagoland area. You know, she she was new to me. Um, so the more I researched, the more I realized, wow, she she wasn't just a quirky character. She was a, really a woman of substance. And uh, then it kind of got to the point where I couldn't believe there wasn't already a book about her. Mm-hmm. You know, there were chapters about her and books about Carl Jung and James Joyce and obviously the Rockefeller family and the McCormick family. Uh, but there was no book of her own. And so you get into this in the book, but I just want to get a sense of of your thoughts. I mean, people get lost. They get written out of history. Your thoughts on on why more people don't know her name? Yeah, because, you know, during her lifetime, everybody knew her name, um, in part because of all the family scandals that that happened. Um, So, you know, she was, she and her family were front page fodder for for decades. Um, And... um, but then after her death, she was pretty quickly forgotten. Um, and a lot of historians believe that her papers were destroyed after her death, possibly by her ex-husband and her brother, because you know she was really kind of the family black sheep. She had very different beliefs and values than they did, and she, she chose a very different route than the other Rockefellers. And I think they were pretty uncomfortable with that. So perhaps it was to their benefit to, to erase her voice. She had also started her own real estate business uh, in the mid-20s, uh, which initially did really well. Um, but then with the real estate slowdown in 27 and then the stock market tr- crash in 29, she was left holding a lot of land that nobody could buy. And I think that the Rockefellers in particular did not want to be held responsible for any of those debts. Um, so by destroying all the materials, they could rightfully, you know, say, you know, we don't, we were not involved with this and we bear no responsibility for it, which was true. Mm. And sad <laughs> that they took that approach. Yeah. Well, you know, she, it really was a tragic life. You'd think, I mean, she's born a Rockefeller, right? Her father is John D. Rockefeller, the oil tycoon and, um, you know, unimaginable wealth. And then she marries Harold McCormick, who is the son of Cyrus <laughs> McCormick, the Reaper King of Chicago here, right? And um, so at the time of her marriage, it was estimated she was probably the richest woman in the country. Yeah. It was, you know, Princess of Standard Oil to marry Prince of, of McCormick Harvester. It was it was the wedding of, of the decade, really, or kind of the merger of the decade. But then uh, by the time she died, she was basically bankrupt. Right. So that land stuff that you referenced that plays a big role in it. But yes. it seems as if, without giving too much away for our, our listeners, but her, her side of the family could have helped her out. It would have been like a drop in the bucket. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Um, she, So she and her husband, Harold, ultimately went through a divorce. It was not a good financial settlement for Edith, so she had that to, to bear. 
And then, of course, she had this this failing business in the end um, that was a big financial blow. Um, and she did. She kept writing to her brother, asking for financial help. She knew that they had it. He was building Rockefeller Center at the time, right? It's the Depression, but he is almost single-handedly financing Rockefeller Center. So she writes to him, and time and again, he just replies. They're heartbreaking letters. You know, she just says, you know, you don't know how it feels to be so alone and, and so on. And um, he just writes back and, you know, we regret to inform you that it would not be in your best interest for us to provide this assistance. It's just heartbreaking. Let's go back a little bit. So in the beginning of the book, you touch upon her childhood. She grows up in Cleveland and then in New York for a period. She gets married fairly young, and then uh, after a couple years in Iowa, comes to Chicago. We'll skip to, to that part. Did she like Chicago of, upon arriving? I think she saw a lot of opportunity in Chicago, right? So they arrived here in 1898, and uh, Chicago was, wow, I mean, it was burgeoning, right? I mean, so the fire was in 1871, burnt everything down. Then the city rebuilt, like, nobody's business, right? So that by the time 1893 rolled around, they could have the World's Columbian Exposition. And they were building the Art Institute and the Field Museum and the University of Chicago. It was just a time of tremendous rebirth. So you have the meatpacking industry, you have, you know, steel, you have um, obviously the harvester business and all of that. And Edith dedicated herself to the arts. She felt that a city is only as strong as its arts community. She felt that arts were, were critical to development of the human being. Um, so she poured herself into all the various arts endeavors in Chicago. She and Harold were particularly involved in opera. So she and Harold were um, some of the original founders of the Chicago Grand Opera. And they poured just huge amounts of money into that. I mean, to the tune of sometimes of three or $400,000 a year mm. at that time, right. right? This is 1910 now we're talking about. So it was a, it was a pretty extravagant lifestyle. They, they purchased a home at 88 Bellevue Place and quickly changed the address to 1000 Lakeshore Drive. Mm -hmm. So it uh, took up the block between Bellevue Place and Oak Street, um, where the Oak Street Beach is now, right? But on the on the west side of Lakeshore Drive. And she just filled it to the brim with uh, all sorts of priceless antiques, including the the dinner service that Napoleon had given his sister when she married the Prince Borghese, uh, 1,600 pieces uh, with the Borghese coat of arms on it, and uh, just all these treasures. Her aim was ultimately, after her death, to give her home to the city of Chicago and have it be the, the Rockefeller McCormick Museum of Chicago. Okay. She and Harold also had a house built in Lake Forest, a summer home, which they called Villa Turcum. It overlooked the lake, and her intent there was the same. She was to fill it with priceless things and then have that be the Rockefeller-McCormick Museum of Lake Forest. So if these things, you know, if the crash hadn't come to be or if she hadn't right. you know, died shortly after that, we would all know her name. Right. I wanted to, before we even get to that, uh, one of the interesting things that you shed light on is that despite the Rockefeller name, she, she grew up in a fiscally conservative household, it, it, she wasn't spoiled by any imagination. Yet when she starts married life, it sounds like she makes up for lost time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up Rockefeller was not what you would imagine 
right? I mean, we, we think, you know, butlers and ball gowns and all that sort of stuff, but it wasn't that at all. Her parents were very devout Baptists, and um, they, uh, the, you know, her father was making millions in, in brand new ways, um, really kind of cha changing the face of business in the United States. Um, but the kids were were earning pennies by pulling weeds and catching flies and practicing their instruments and so on. And they had to account for all of that money. They all had account books. They had to, to record everything very carefully. And that money was not for spending. That money was for the church plate or for saving. So I think that when she married Harold and all of a sudden they had their own household, she could spend. And it was just, you know, the floodgates opened. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Also, you mentioned the uh, the villa, the the summer house in, in Lake Forest, and you, you had mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright, but it sounds like they interacted on the at least once on the potential design of that, but it didn't go too well. Yes, that's right. So yeah, so Harold really liked Frank Lloyd Wright's designs. So when time came to build this this home in Lake Forest, he was one of the architects that they considered. So Wright actually drew up plans for for the home, but uh, there's a lovely description by in Frank Lloyd Wright's words um, of how this encounter happened at, in outside at 1000 Lakeshore Drive, where um, you know he and Harold and others were waiting for Edith to arrive, and she finally arrived, and uh, she she wouldn't even glance at, at his drawings. You know, she said that's what was it? That's that's all very fine for the mountains, but isn't right for for the lakeshore type of thing. Right. So there's certain pieces of, uh, you know, reading through this, it, it almost makes it hard to, to sympathize with Edith. But I'm guessing with your, you know, spending as much time you did researching, how did your feelings toward her evolve over time? Oh, that's such a good question. So I started out thinking, you know, quirky person, right? Interesting, interesting character. Let's just go with that. And then I started to realize, wow, you know, she did a lot. So, you know, neglected person, let's, let's give her some due. But then as I was researching, not only did I discover that she's you know, highly intelligent and that she really, you know, tried to change the world in certain ways, but um, she was also emotionally very stunted. Uh, she and Harold had five children. Um, their firstborn, John Rockefeller McCormick, died in 1904 of scarlet fever. Um, and then a second child, Editha, died just a couple years later before her first birthday. Um, so three children would, would survive and grow to adulthood. But I think that those two losses were critical for Edith. I think that now prior to that time, we have articles that she wrote for women's magazines and so on and, and other writings of hers that indicate that, you know, all the, a woman's glory is motherhood and being a wife. Um, and her her tone kind of changes after those losses. Mm -hmm. And you can sense that she is withdrawing. By the, you know, 1910s, 19-teens, I guess, um, she is beginning to have panic attacks. You know, she, growing up Rockefeller was great in some ways, um, but also scary. A lot of people hated them. You know, they got tons of hate mail, and there's front page cartoons lampooning her father because, you know, he had so much influence. People were resentful. Um, so she grew up with a lot of fear, and all of the siblings developed nervous ailments. So after the death of her two children, she began to have some panic attacks and uh, sought help from uh, that then little-known 
uh, psychoanalyst named Carl Jung. Right, right. And as far as the uh, the panic attacks, I think you write about it. It was like a, a multiple-part series in a magazine on John Rockefeller that seemed to cause quite a bit <laughs> quite a bit of angst among the, the whole family, that she might have been the least affected, at least on the surface. Yeah, so that was the very famous uh, series in McClure's magazine written by Ida Tarbell. Uh-huh. She wrote a series on John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil, and I think that all the family members learned a lot about their father. Grandfather. Um, yeah, grandfather, right? John D. Rockefeller's father. Um, Ida Tarbell, had, she had done her homework. She did her digging, and she discovered things about, about uh, Bill, Big Bill Rockefeller, William Rockefeller, um, that I'm sure Edith didn't know. Uh, they were not good things. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of, lot of reasons to take shelter for Edith. So in 1913, she, she actually met Carl Jung in 1912 in New York, and he accompanied her over to Zurich. Um, she had some serious travel phobias. I don't think she could have done the crossing without that. Keep in mind, this was also right after the Titanic, so there are some very real dangers there. So she goes over to Zurich and begins psychoanalysis with him. Uh, It's intended to be just a few months, but ultimately that grows into eight years. And during that time, um, she helps finance translations of his work into English and other languages. She also uh, buys a building for use um, as a psychological club for Carl Jung and and his followers and supporters. And that still stands. Um, So she did a lot for him. And then she becomes a a psychologist, and I don't know if that's what you call it. uh. Yeah, so he anointed her as an analyst as well. Okay. Yeah, so she began hearing dreams. Uh, People would come to her at the hotel that she lived in. (laughs) She lived in the Hotel Bauer Lock in Zurich, Switzerland, for eight years. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with local author Andrea Friederici Ross about her book, Edith, the Rogue Rockefeller McCormick. In the back of the book, there's a, uh, it's kind of like a, an epilogue, but like legacy where you provide updates on a lot of the people, places, and, and things that you have written about in the book. In Chicago, of course, the, the zoo will always be part of her legacy, but are the, uh, her original home at 1000 Lakeshore Drive and the property up in uh, Lake Forest, what are those now? Well, they're gone. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so they stood empty for a few decades. Um, Edith's estate took a very, very long time to settle. Um, because of her debts, really everything was auctioned off, um, including, you know, they tried to auction off the paneling on the walls and so on at 1000 Lakeshore Drive. Um, and uh, so they stood empty for a very, very long time. Uh, that was finally torn down. There are now, now two skyscrapers standing there um, in that footprint. Um, condos, very nice condos, I'm sure, uh, overlooking Oak Street Beach. And then um, kind of the same fate uh, for Villa Turricum up in Lake Forest, only a little bit worse, a little bit more painful, um, because people had easy access to that from the beach. You know, they could climb up the, the bluff. Um, it was heavily vandalized. It was in bad shape. There are pictures of this um, online. They're heartbreaking. But then in the late 1960s, a developer uh, named Robert Kendler bought the property. Um, Initially, he said he intended to restore the building. um, But I think once he found how far gone it was, uh, he developed it instead. There are still pieces of that 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 remain. The staircase to the beach is still there. 
Um, the tea house is still there. There's a reflecting pond. So little little bits and pieces are there. And then Edith's real estate firm, they uh, built various homes as far north as Highland Park and going all the way into the city, as well as a lot of apartment buildings and so on, including a tall one at 3300 Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. So there are bits and pieces here and there, but uh, it's not it's not a big presence. And as far as her support of opera, she really gets things started, but is there a, a connection between lyric opera and what she started, or it's totally separate? So it's not a direct line. So she started the Chicago Grand Opera, and uh, it really kind of, it was a bumpy road. There wasn't the financial support in Chicago that they needed. There also wasn't really the audience in Chicago that they needed for that, um, but they built that slowly. Um, it gradually morphed in the sh into the Chicago Civic Opera, um, and then in, uh, in the 30s and 40s, it, it disappeared entirely until uh, the Lyric Opera came around in the 1950s. One thing we haven't really talked about, you mentioned that uh, the family's name was in the papers a lot. During her time in Chicago, Edith and her, her husband were known for throwing like these really crazy parties. Oh, that is very accurate, right? They entertained a lot and very lavishly. Yeah, sometimes using the, the Napoleon silverware, other times not. Um, but uh, yes, it, it, it was a big deal, always written up in the papers and so on. Then when she came back from, from uh, Switzerland in the early 1920s, Harold, in the meantime, had fallen in love with an opera singer. Mm -hmm. uh, her name was Ghana Valska. Uh, that was her stage name. But beautiful woman, but terrible singer. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, she approached him, you know, you know, age-old story of, uh, you know, meeting some, meeting the rich man at the backstage door, and uh, trying, trying to get a role with the opera. So um, she pursued this. Orson Welles actually said that this love triangle serves as inspiration for the love triangle in Citizen Kane. But anyways, uh, Harold fell in love with Ganavalska and ultimately divorced Edith. Uh, she did not want a divorce. Um, this is what caused her to come back to Chicago. She wanted to save the marriage, um, but Harold would have none of that. He assembled a powerhouse legal team that included Clarence Darrow. Imagine having him on your divorce team, <laughs> right? And, and you know, the, the rest is history. When you think of, like, the timeline of her life, that Switzerland period that really changes a lot, there's probably issues within that marriage regardless but that time away affects her relationship with her kids, too. Yeah, so that time away, I, I'd like to think of it really as Edith's time. You know, it was the first time in, in her life where she really focused entirely on herself. Um, she began, you know, a course of studies um, through the university. Um, she had the professors come to her to her hotel suite. But uh, it's the first time that she she's not responsible for anything. No households, uh, no children. Right. Um, her oldest child, her son, um, Harold Fowler McCormick Jr., his name, they called him Fowler. He uh, was here in the States uh, going to Groton initially and then off to university. And then one of her daughters, uh, Mathilde, was installed in a sanatorium in Davos, Switzerland, in the mountains because she had respiratory issues. And the other daughter, Muriel, was also in Zurich, but was taken care of in, by her governess in a different hotel suite. So Edith was really pretty hands-off as far as all that is concerned. Um, so yeah, it, it completely changed the rhythm of her life. 
And I think it completely changed the direction of her life because um, she grew to value study and she grew to value psychoanalysis. And her intent when she came back here to Chicago was to start a center here, a Midwestern center for psychoanalysis up at Villa Turicum. So that never came to be, but she did continue her own practice out of 1000 Lakeshore Drive and saw patients uh, there in her sitting room um, for, for you know, her remaining years. Yeah. Do you have hopes for what the people that, that read this take away from it? You know, you know what the takeaway was for me? Well, there were two. One is that, you know, money's not the answer, <laughs> right? I have a lot of opportunities in my life that Edith never had because she was born into a certain... Mm-hmm. A st- certain strata of society and had to perform a certain way. So money is not the answer. But the other interesting thing for me was her evolution as a woman, because she really starts out, you know, just first of all, you know, to get married is the thing that that's that's the goal and and to marry well, right, which she does, and then to have children and to raise them. But then as she goes along, she she begins to focus more on herself, and then she begins to speak out about about women in society and their roles. And of course, this is a critical time for, for women's history, right? They get the vote in 1920, and Edith was not an early suffragist. She did eventually you know, jump on that bandwagon when it was clear that that, that was the way to go, um, but she was not one of the first on there. And then by starting her own real estate company um, and uh, some of her other endeavors, she, she really tried to be kind of a modern woman right? So one of my takeaways is, what is my own evolution as a woman? I don't know. I guess I'd never really thought of that before. Mm-hmm. I think the overarching thing, what would have Edith, this person accomplished, I guess, if she was uh, a son instead of uh, so many opportunities not provided, not even considered just because of her gender. Exactly. If, if she had been born male, her her story arc would have been entirely different, right? You know, Maybe not fair either. I mean, you know, Junior was destined for a life in Standard Oil initially, which he didn't want. Mm. He end, he ends up walking away from that um, and focusing on philanthropy, which was great for the Rockefellers um, in general. But she never had that opportunity. While Edith is in Switzerland, um, father begins her father begins turning over vast amounts of money to Junior. Um, so he, Junior is the recipient of basically $400 million, um, which he can do with as he wants, whereas Edith and her sister, um, are they receive trusts, where they receive a certain amount of money each year, um, and uh, they can manipulate the interest but can never never touch the principal or influence that in any way. So it was a very uh, inequitable setup. She wrote many, many letters to her father during that time saying, I sometimes wish that you forget, you could forget that I am a woman, for I have much to offer, and many people find me much resembling you. Um, it must have been frustrating. She was very intelligent, and she did have strong beliefs but her father did not share those those interests and those beliefs. She was never able to do as much as she wanted to there. The book is Edith, the Rogue Rockefeller McCormick. Andrea, thanks so much for coming by to talk. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. That was Andrea Friederici Ross. She's the author of Edith, the Rogue Rockefeller McCormick. Well, baby, what I couldn't do with plenty.
And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. It's the root of all evil, of strife and upheaval, but I'm certain, honey. Sunny.